0: So the title of my talk today is Diagnosing Intolerance, Knowledge Practices After Socialism. And the images here you see on the left is the toppling of the uh, monument of Lenin in Riga uh, in the early 90s, and then a political poster um, about joining the European Union. So just to give a sense that as the... Soviet regime was toppling. The the future was already marked as one towards Europe in Latvia, which was quite different from, say, Russia, where the collapse of the Soviet Union was largely referred to as as a kind of, through tropes of loss. Anyways, but today's talk is part of a book manuscript on post-socialist democratization in Latvia. More specifically, the book is a tonography of how a network of government and non-government actors worked to obtain public recognition of the problem of intolerance as a problem of negative attitudes towards racial, ethnic, religious, and sexual minorities. They looked to remake intolerant sensibilities into tolerant ones in order to bring Latvians into the European political and moral community. These tolerance workers, as I call them, did so under the auspices of a European Union-funded national program for the promotion of tolerance, which consisted of a series of seminars, discussions, campaigns, and similar events. So the puzzle that the book tries to address is this. On the one hand, Europe's political landscape is characterized by extranational racialized exclusions increasingly understood as routine exercises in national sovereignty or public government, uh, governance. For example, France expels Roma in the name of public order. The UKBA puts a go-home or face-arrest van, also known as the racist van, in the streets of London, targeting South Asian and Asian communities. A Swiss locality bans asylum seekers from public spaces on the grounds of security, and Latvia moves to enshrine an ethno-racial identity of the state in the Constitution. On the other hand, Europe's self-narrative is one of democracy, freedom, human rights, and tolerance. These are considered to be among Europe's greatest civilizational achievements and also its most exportable virtues. Thus, for example, the Netherlands demands that potential immigrants demonstrate tolerance towards uh, sexual freedom and same-sex relations, Germany's state-based liberal anti-racism engages in a civilizing mission to eliminate Muslim anti-Semitism, and European Union institutions demand that European Union candidate states demonstrate their commitment to human rights, democracy, and tolerance. So in the book, I ask what the relationship is between the racialized exclusions constitutive of the current historical conjuncture in Europe and the tolerance promotion efforts in Latvia. Critics have pointed out the liberal politics of tolerance maintain racialized hierarchies insofar as they incorporate objects of tolerance through exclusion and also engage in a civilizing project of the not-yet-tolerant subjects. Now, I argue that by extending the civilizing project to Eastern Europe as Europe's own backward past, the core of Europe as it were, reasserts its moral superiority and obscures how a racial and colonial political rationality animates European liberalism as well, and not just Latvian nationalism. But I I locate this tolerance promotion um, within the broader project of post- uh, socialist democratization, which is a part of a series of Zations that the collapse of Soviet and Eastern European socialism set into motion, such as privatization, liberalization, marketization, and so on. And so these Zations together make up what has come to be known as the post-socialist transition industry, much critiqued by anthropologists for its teleological underpinnings. This industry not only aims to put the failed Soviet and socialist moderns onto a correct path of historical development, but also to prepare some of them, those deemed potentially European, for entry into the European political and moral community. Now, this end of history logic, which is probably familiar to you, vis-à-vis the famous pronouncement by Francis Fukuyama of the end of history. It, it sort of it had, it had uh, equally, if not more, transformative force in much of the former Soviet and, East, uh, and socialist Eastern Europe than the collapse of socialism itself. Among other things, it inserted Eastern Europe into relations of tutelage with a variety of development institutions and monitoring bodies, and created conditions for a flourishing of an ignorance about the present, which is what I will focus on today. And just a little... Information about the post-socialist democratization industry, it could be said that the two main pillars of this uh, transition industry were the remaking of the organization of economic life and the remaking of the organization of political life. And here you see the differentizations that sort of go under each one of those um, modalities and the things that they try to do. If you, you, You'll see this if you look at any uh, documents of development agencies or European Union institutions that worked in Eastern Europe, sort of pre- pretty standard uh, text so you'll see that in terms of economic life, transition policies try to create market-based uh, institutions for market-based economy, to privatize public services and state enterprises, to liberalize, liberalize prices and so on. And in terms of political life, they aim to reform the electoral system and the judiciary, to create civil society, and to mitigate authoritarian and nationalist tendencies as well, including promoting tolerance. Now, the remaking of individual and... Co- <laughs> individual and collective sensibilities and dispositions was important for facilitating reorganization organization of economic and political life, and these were often thought to hinder the successful tradition, uh, transition. So in terms of economic life, these uh, usually were articulated as state dependency, people's inability to think in market terms, lack of individual responsibility and initiative and corruption, and in terms of political life, these were... Uh, lack of civil, uh, civic consciousness, formal organization in NGOs and so forth, and also, importantly, lack of critical thinking and the presence of the two isms that I will be talking mostly today, uh, nationalism and authoritarianism, as well as also illiberal conceptions of society. Now, much of... Um, largely Euro-American anthropology of post-socialism focused on the transformations of economic life and produced powerful critiques of neoliberalism and neoliberalization to the point that now anthropologists are actually starting to be wary of sort of fast critiques of neoliberalism for neoliberalism has become, has become reified as this bad word without necessarily then looking at what, what actually is meant by it. Uh, But quite a few works, especially early works, within this body of scholarship implicitly or explicitly harbored hope that local contexts may yet offer alternatives to capitalism grounded in that which was good about socialism, such as solidarity, for example. With regard to political life, anthropologists largely turned attention to post-socialist nationalism, which is one of the targets of democratization efforts. And here, anthropological critique did not so much focus on the Zations than isms, Now, my work, uh, however, focuses on encounters between Zations and isms, that is, between democratization initiatives on the one hand and political practices and sensibilities they aim to remake, such as nationalism or racism, on the other. Now, in turning a critical eye towards Zations, I do not absolve post-socialist subjects of responsibility for nationalism and racism. Rather, I aim to dismantle the often unquestioned moral superiority which animates democratization projects and argue that they too are complicit in creating conditions for the racialized exclusions constitutive of Europe's present. Now today I will talk about knowledge production and tolerance promotion. I will argue that knowledge production about the problem of intolerance is characterized by a diagnostic modality, which identifies ailments that are known, that is, intolerance, and subsequently devises treatment to arrive at a healthy state of affairs, that is, tolerance. Now, this produces an ignorance about the present and hinders understanding of how related racialized exclusions animate seemingly opposite political projects, such as Latvian nationalism and European liberalism. Drawing on Frederick Barthes and Andreas Glaser's work, it could be said that the collapse of the Soviet and Eastern European socialisms put into question both the institutionalized knowledge, or knowledge without knowers, as Bart says, found in textbooks, policy documents, and scientific reports, and the knowledge as understanding that individual knowers use to orient and act in the world. In early post-Soviet Latvia, the remaking of understanding and knowledge solidified a discursive juxtaposition between Western and Soviet mentalities as well as between Western scientific knowledge and Soviet ideological knowledge. In conditions of total social transformation, when one's friends, those whom one trusted, um, seemed to be as lost as oneself. Individuals from the West often emerged as authority figures for obtaining and validating emerging understandings of the new situation. And now, the West actually is a folk category that people actively use. That is not, uh, it is not something that I'm imposing on this context. Those of you who may be familiar with Alexey Yurchak's work will also know that he, he has written on the as, on imaginary West as an operative category in the late socialism. Uh, and so it also actually did a lot of work in the early post-Soviet period, uh, which is exemplified by this term that I'm now going to use, in Latvian, which means Westerners, and this was um, widely used. So those who hailed from the other side of the Iron Curtain as far as Australia and the United States, including several generations of Latvians who had resided abroad during the Soviet period, became experts of how things were to be done in the new post-Soviet present merely by virtue of having lived in what was called the free world. Rietumnik arrived as staff members of development agencies such as the United Nations Development Programme and the World Bank, as entrepreneurs and investors, as government advisors, as researchers, translators, visitors and relatives. Their knowledge of the West which ranged from high-level professional skills to everyday knowledge of banking operations to the embodied skills of opening food packaging until recently not available in Latvia was valued regardless of their political commitments. And the food packaging was actually quite, it might seem funny, but it was quite serious. I mean, you all of a sudden were overwhelmed with a lot of things that at the very basic level you didn't know how to operate. So that created for people a lot of anxiety, especially those who traveled abroad. Now whether liberals, conservatives or even leftists, rietumnieki were thought to have the kind of understanding often referred to as mentality that was needed to operate in the free world which Latvia had just joined. Now, former Soviet citizens, regardless of their education, skills, or life experience, became handicapped, for their understanding of the world was thought to be crippled by Soviet ideology. Even if a person did not associate themselves with the ideology of the Soviet state, their knowledge and skills were still found to be lacking, because they simply had not been exposed to a wide variety of the so-called Western practices, as well as because of the ideological nature of the Soviet education system, uh, which was thought to have discouraged critical thinking, and self-initiative. To this day, Latvia's publicists, government officials, and politicians use references to Soviet mentality to explain a wide variety of public attitudes and conduct, not surprisingly, especially those that aim to critique current government policies. For example, a parliamentary deputy recently explained to me that people do not trust politicians because, they're not using, used to, um, because they are used to not trusting the Communist Party, never mind you know, what has happened in between. So in such cases, references to Soviet legacy become a crutch for explaining the present without the need to understand it. Now, there was one domain of collective life in Latvia in which Western understandings were not privileged by governing political coalitions and the majority of the Latvian public, and that was the national question. Most people thought that Westerners, especially various human rights monitoring institutions and European commissioners, did not thoroughly understand the traumatic Soviet history and could not see that this history of Soviet-Russian domination in Latvia necessitated compensatory measures in the present, such as restrictive language, minority, and citizenship policies that demanded latvia's Russian-speaking residents to accept, if not embrace, the new state as a Latvian state. I have written on on the minority question um, in post-Soviet Latvia elsewhere, so today I will only note that in this particular domain, it was the West who was thought to not understand the historical specificity of Latvia's post-Soviet realities, and then, of course, it was precisely the Latvian politicians' and public's insistence on the demands of history upon contemporary citizenship, language, and minority politics that many tolerance and human rights workers consider to be an indication of Latvia's democratic deficit." Now, meanwhile, in the realm of academic knowledge, the social sciences and humanities were also largely discredited as ideological projects of the Soviet state. Sociology, political science, and related disciplines had to rebuild themselves, often through rapid borrowings from Western colleagues. As noted by Latvian uh, sociologists in a recent volume on the development of of the discipline in Latvia, in the 1990s, Latvian sociology turned into an applied and empirical science largely because it needed to to survive in post-Soviet market conditions. Latvian sociologists established firms and began to fulfill the demand for real-time knowledge about social practices and attitudes that could be used for crafting new government programs and policies. Social scientists engaged in quantitative and qualitative studies, drawing on standardized social science methods used across disciplines, such as structured interviews and focus group discussions, Um, that could provide fast, reproducible, and comparable results. Most of, not all of this research uh, was funded by various donors, such as the United Nations Development Programme, the Soros Foundation, the European Commission, all of whom also used this research then to justify their development interventions. Ivar Stablund, a Latvian sociologist, argues that as a result, data produced about social processes, practices, and attitudes became comparable uh, to that from other countries and thus was thought to gain in quality. I suggest, however, that it is precisely this comparability that, while increasing the perceived quality of Latvian social sciences in accordance with the standards of international policy research, hindered the development of a deep understanding of the post-Soviet present. As Gerald Creed and many others have argued, much of the research conducted in Eastern Europe focused on core concepts of Western political economy, such as democracy, civil society, privatization, and so forth, and so on, as well as the supposed, as he says, indigenous barriers to these goals, like patriarchy, corruption, nationalism, and so forth. So here I think it is worth noting that Postcolonial studies have actually produced a powerful critique of the Western knowledge apparatus, often relying on such concepts as local knowledge and cultural difference to gesture towards other ways of knowing and other forms of life. However, contrary to post-colonial context, Eastern Europe does not seem to have recourse to local knowledge or cultural difference that could fuel imaginaries of otherwise and from which to mount a critique of the developmentalist and evolutionary thinking that prevailed in both research and policy. Socialism was discredited, and all that seemed to have been left was nationalism, which, as Marion MacDonald has pointed out, is the political platform against which the European Union constructs itself. And thus, Western liberalism emerged as the only valid state-based political modality for organizing collective life, one that could prevent all of Eastern Europe from sliding back into communism or nationalism. So in the post-Soviet present, comparison carried out in social sciences, but also in public life more broadly, didn't simply compare and contrast, but also arranged units of comparison on an evolutionary scale. In the case of post-Soviet Latvia and other EU candidate states, the comparison was undertaken with a sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit goal of determining how far away the future was and whether things were proceeding in the right direction. And so this attachment of of, uh, Latvia's future to the West is visible in most spheres of life, including that of tolerance promotion. Here, the Soviet past represents the obfuscation of human difference and therefore the suppression of intolerance. The present is seen as a period of transition transition when both difference and intolerance... um, Uh, erupt into the public arena, and finally, then the future is one of tolerance and liberal democracy. So, for example, one tolerance worker explained to me, and I quote, you know, there were some grey groups like homosexuals who did not exist in the Soviet Union. They were not visible. I, for example, I didn't have a sense that it, meaning homosexuality, is possible until about 10th grade. It could be said that the potential for intolerance was great, but it was not promoted and was not articulated, and the taboo was not doubt it. Critical thinking was not promoted. Starting with awakening, that is the independence movement, people started to problematize things and one extreme is acceptance, the other is exclusion. Perhaps it is connected with the fact that there was no thinking and therefore there was no tolerance, end of quote. Another activist born and raised in Sweden to Latvian and agree, parents uh, told me that what is happening in Latvia today very much reminds her of her childhood in Sweden and she, and I quote, Whether with regard to emancipation, paternity rights, or security belts in cars, or helmets for bikers, all environmental issues, all these things were not present when I was a child, but they had been implemented by the time I was an adult. And when I read papers here, that is in Latvia, I have a déjà vu of sorts. And then I know where all these discussions will end up, with the exception that here it all happens so much faster." So between the Soviet past and the European future, the former thought of as hindering the arrival of the latter, the present is still a permanent transition, transition even if an accelerated one. The present is not visible in this interplay between the past and the future, characteristic of transition temporality. As Ozra Popovac has argued, such traffic between the past that has a hold upon the future and thus continuously needs to be overcome. And a future that is continuously deferred, thus requiring more intervention, produces profound ignorance about the present. Ignorance, however, is not lack of knowledge or understanding. The space of ignorance is filled with understandings and knowledge, with knowers and knowing subjects. So now I turn to analysis of tolerance workers as particular knowers, as well as to the emergence of the knowing subject that claims authority as the producer of formal knowledge about racism and intolerance. Our core problem is the inability to recognize the problem, said Ilse, explaining the state of affairs with regard to intolerance in Latvia during a conversation I had had with her in late 2005. Ilse is a human rights expert and currently a high-ranking official within the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. At the time of our conversation, she was the director of the Latvian Center for Human Rights and Ethnic Studies. They were a trusted partner of international institutions, such as the European Commission Against Racism and Intolerance, in their efforts to monitor racism and intolerance. I should note that another person who was a director of this center before her has now become the Council of Europe's uh, Commissioner for Human Rights. So it's an interesting sort of career path for, for the tolerance workers in Latvia moving to really, really high post. Uh, So Ilza was a political scientist and a Colombian graduate, Columbia University graduate, with political liberal orientations. She was also one uh, of 10 or so people with diverse personal and professional histories and politics that made up the consultative council of the National Program for the Promotion of Tolerance. This and other groups... Uh, this, uh, she and uh, other people uh, that worked in, in various government institutions and non-governmental in- uh, organizations made up this broader network of tolerance workers um, that I worked with. Some of them claimed a minority status. Others expressed commitment to liberal democratic values. Some had grown up in Latvia. Others had moved to Latvia later in life because they reinstated their Latvian citizenship as descendants of pre-World War II body of citizenry. Some others had come to Latvia during the Soviet period from other Soviet republics or friendly uh, countries outside the Soviet Union as students and had remained um, in Latvia after, in- after independence in ninety one. They shared an understanding that there was a problem of intolerance in Latvia, though they didn't necessarily agree on the, its precise contours, scale, and necessary interventions. They did agree, however, that the problem of intolerance was not limited to discriminatory action on hate crimes, actions that could be prosecuted by law. Its most important manifestations were in public and political attitudes and conduct, ranging from racialized looks to offhand remarks uh, to systematic use of injurious language, as well as to the larger problem of not recognizing the problem, as noted by Ilzen. When Ilse and I talked, the program, this national program for the promotion of tolerance, had already been approved by the Cabinet of Ministers um, and funded with the help of European Commission. For some of the tolerance workers, this was a major achievement. However, Ilse found it lacking. She pointed out that the title of the program emphasized the promotion of tolerance rather than a fight against intolerance. For her, this was paradigmatic of the most serious problem faced by the Latvian society. And she said, we as an organization try to objectively point to problems, but many people think of us as traitors. They say, How can you say such things in front of foreigners and talk about our problems? The politicians think that everything is imposed. They are motivated by a desire to pretend that they are better than they are to show the West that we already are a democracy. The Durban, and she refers here to the Conference Against Racism in 2001, the Durban slogan is against intolerance, and we couldn't even accept that because we cannot admit that intolerance exists here, end quote. The title of the draft program had indeed been against intolerance. However, during the public discussions that took place, In March and April of 2004, some people objected to privileging racial, ethnic, and religious minorities and argued that people with disabilities as well as old people were also targets of intolerance and that therefore the program program should focus on promotion of tolerance more broadly. Now this difference between promoting tolerance and fighting against tolerance uh, may seem insignificant or a matter of mere rhetoric, but the discussions that unfolded in Latvia suggested that it was indeed important. Now, defining the problem of intolerance required the identification of specific categories of difference, that is, of ethnicity, race, or religion, which conjured up groups prone to experience intolerance in Latvia. In the eyes of Latvian politicians and the public, such an articulation of the problem risked entrenching the image of Latvia as a backward rather than a European state, In other words, both Latvian politicians and the public reacted not only to the demand to recognize the problem of intolerance, but also to the power hierarchies in which such a demand was embedded. They feared that the problem of intolerance could come to stand for the state and the people as a whole. Promotion of intolerance, in turn, was a much gentler formulation, one that emphasized the social virtue of tolerance public commitment to the virtue of tolerance was a much better option than public recognition of persisting problems of intolerance. As a result, the title of the program was changed. Now, Ilze was not satisfied, and in a public interview right after um, the approval of the program, she said, and I quote, We do not have sufficient scientific basis for defining tolerance, but we need to define groups against which there is intolerance. So no person considers themselves intolerant. If there will be no concrete criteria, I can just read the document and conclude that I'm tolerant and everything is fine. End of quote. Ilza's statements provide insight into key assumptions that animated tolerance work in Latvia, namely that the problem of intolerance was a known phenomenon that had to be identified and that in order to properly address it, one needed to begin by recognizing it. She considered that public recognition of the problem of intolerance, rather than a vague commitment to a general social virtue of tolerance, was an important indicator of Latvians' capacity for critical reflection and thus for liberal democracy. This link she made... Uh, rendered the project of Tolerance Promotion a civilizing project, namely the kind of project that aimed to bring the not-yet-European Latvians into the European political and moral community through Tolerance Promotion. So the project of Tolerance Promotion then created a set of hierarchies. First, it created the racialized hierarchy between the subject of tolerance... The unmarked liberal subject and objects of tolerance, such as racial, ethnic, and religious minorities, for which the liberal politics of tolerance is much critiqued. And the relationship otherwise goes as in sort of des- desire for inclusion or, or the critique of, of this uh, actual um, project of inclusion itself. Um, Second, it created a civilizational and arguably therefore also racialized hierarchy between the unmarked liberal subject and the marked for still Latvian and nationalistic aspiring European subject, which needed to become unmarked, liberal and tolerant in relation to the still marked racialized object of tolerance. So the relationship between the marked Latvian subject and the marked object of tolerance is very sort of just straightforward. Tolerance, as it we're going in one direction and critique of that in the other. Um, and so kind of this triangulated. Uh, I'm, I'm not sort of using this as an explanatory framework, but rather as a kind of heuristic device for just sort of try to map a little bit the argument um, that I'm trying to make. Um, so the larger argument is that tolerance promotion is embedded in a colonial mode of power a colonial political rationality that codes difference racially. Namely, it places differences of conduct and sensibilities on a hierarchical development scale that, while no longer attached to race as a biological category, nevertheless carries racial connotations insofar as those placed lower on this scale are thought of as less mature and therefore in need of tutelage. Now, does my critique of tolerance promotion then amount to the suggestion that there is no problem of racism and nationalism in Latvia? Not at all. Latvian self making and nation building practices are indeed shaped by ethno racial and extranational racial conceptions of community and polity that go hand in hand with everyday racisms and nationalisms. However, neither the ethno racial conceptions of community nor the everyday racism and nationalism are sole products of Latvian backward sensibilities. Importantly, they're also products of the hegemony of racialized conceptions of political and historical agency in European modernity. Ironically, therefore, it is precisely in the name of becoming European or returning to Europe that many in Latvia embrace ethno racial conceptions of community and polity. My argument is that the institutionalized and standardized liberal politics of tolerance promotion are not capable of recognizing how Latvian ethno-racial sensibilities and politics are both translocal and historically specific. Instead, they attribute them to moral and developmental failures of not-yet-European individuals and collectives, thus writing race and coloniality out of the European present. Insofar as the liberal politics of tolerance does so, it is complicit with perpetuating the colonial mode of power and contributing to the endurance of race in Europe. However, the racialization of particular populations is not the only effect of tolerance promotion as a civilizing project. It also hinders tolerance workers' ability to understand the present, instead producing a self-referential circuit of knowledge production that aims to overcome survivals of a known past in order to arrive into an equally known future Um, that knowledge produced and called upon for the purposes of political justification of this uh, national program for promotion of tolerance constituted what Bart called knowledge without knowers. That is, it took the form of policy research reports that were disarticulated from the understandings of specific individuals, but nevertheless produced a particular knowing subject, a situated post-socialist liberal subject that oversaw the transition from socialism to liberalism while keeping nationalism at bay. At the same time, everyday tolerance work depended on individual knowers whose understanding of the world included a sense that there was something amiss with how Latvia's residents understood and related to human difference. Some of them, for example, Michael, an African-American who had lived in Latvia for 11 years and represented the African-Latvian Association, or Laila, a Jewish woman born in Latvia who represented the Jewish Community Association, claimed experiential knowledge of racism and intolerance as the basis for their interest in involvement in tolerance work. While Lila countered, um, worked to counter the anti-Semitic language in public discourse, Michael often called me with examples of racial uh, racist slurs he had heard or racialized stares he had received on a particular day. They both on different occasions sus- exhibited suspicion towards people who claimed to be concerned with the problem of intolerance but who were neither marked by a category of difference that could become the basis for intolerance nor were in a kinship nor were in a kinship relationship with someone who was for both Lila and Michael then embodied an affective experience of intolerance was a crucial validating factor for the understanding of the problem. Other tolerance workers, especially those who did not make political claims on the basis of politically recognized categories of difference, such as Ilse and Nils, both former directors of the Ethnic Studies and Human Rights Center I mentioned, they explained that they acquired their tolerance sensibilities in the process of socialization and education. Many of them emphasized that their commitment to tolerance work went beyond their professional duties as civil servants or staff members of research institutions. For example, Zyg described her path uh, to her commitment to tolerance work as routed through democratic institutions that enabled her to breathe the air of democracy, as she said, and I quote, I got involved with the Center of Democracy in Latvia, and there I got interested in the notion of civic education, and then I had the opportunity to spend three months at the University of Indiana, and the air of democracy that I breathed there, I cannot call it otherwise, but the air of democracy, end quote. Zyga, similar to other tolerance workers with liberal sensibilities, thought of intolerance as natural, if backward, state of affairs, that is, as a natural aversion towards everything that is different and therefore strange, and yet that's something that could be uh, worked th- reworked through education. So as all of these individuals became tolerance workers, they continued to form and reform their understandings about human difference, and they also institutionalized Um, the problem of intolerance in the agendas of various government institutions so while the one of the important outcomes of this formation and institutionalization of understanding was the emergence of a self-referential circuit of knowledge production that became nearly immune to critical insight The process itself is also messy and fraught with puzzlement, speculation, misunderstanding, and disagreement. So, for example, Michael, the African-American man who was concerned with racialized stairs, often suspected those who did not have any direct experience with discrimination, racism, or intolerance for having ulterior motives for becoming involved in tolerance work, uh, for example, motives such as remuneration or a political career, and of course the fact that both ILS and ILS moved to very high positions into the European structures served as, as proof that this was indeed the case. At the same time, some of the professional tolerance workers expressed dissatisfaction with the partial understandings of the problem exhibited by minority subjects. Throughout the numerous meetings, discussions, and private conversations during the course of my fieldwork, A picture emerged whereby professional tolerance workers tended to think that, for example, some members of the African-Latvian Association were on occasion homophobic or at least reluctant to form solidarities with the mainly white middle-class LGBT rights activists, They also suspected Jewish community representatives of being intolerant towards what they called other communities of belief, such as Krishnas, and thought that the Russian minority rights activists were on occasion both racist and homophobic. Interestingly, LGBT activists often emerged as the most tolerant, and thus the most liberal of minorities, measured by their professed willingness to form solidarities with other minority subjects in the struggle to obtain state-based recognition and protection. In turn, tolerance towards LGBT people was often marked as the key indicator of democracy. As one activist and researcher told me, and I quote, democracy in Latvia is not faring much better than sexual minorities, end quote. And yet in their eyes, there were occasions when LGBT activists too did not seem to be able to hold a straight liberal line, succumbing to exclusionary cultural interpretations of the nation. Consequently, it was only those who were neither nationalists nor could themselves be objects of intolerance and thus could not be linked with single-issue tolerance politics that emerged as proper subjects of tolerance able to establish an equivalence between politically recognized categories of difference as well as exhibit consistency in professing tolerance towards them. As Il, the director of the Latvian Center for Human Rights and Ethnic Studies, explained to me, and I quote, a person who is intolerant towards a particular religious group is also likely to be racist or xenophobic, end quote. Ensuring the opposite consistency, that is tolerance as a virtue across contexts of difference, meant that some of the tolerance workers themselves, mainly those that identified as minorities, became objects of the critical gaze of the unmarked liberal um, and tolerant subject. So one of the ways in which tolerance workers formed their understanding of the problem of intolerance was through circulation of problematic statements they encountered in their private conversations and discussions. So, for example, during my first meeting with Daniel, a civil servant working uh, uh, on implementation of this program, um, he told me about a seminar he had recently organized for public school teachers with the aim uh, to educate them about the problem of intolerance. During the seminar, he had... Uh, illustrated what he thought racial intolerance looked like by presenting the teachers with quotes of negative public st- statements about potential African or Asian migrants who might arrive in Latvia following Latvia's accession to the European Union. And the months leading up to accession in 2004, had provided ample material to draw upon as a variety of accession opponents tried to convince the public that one look at London or other European metropoles struggling with diversity should be enough to cool down the desire to join. For Daniel, these statements were a clear indication of the magnitude of the problem of intolerance. However, the teachers had been puzzled that Daniel asked them to reflect on racism, given that there were not many racially marked others in the Latvian public space. Moreover, the teachers did not think that Latvia had any historically formed moral responsibility to open borders, like former colonial states, and that therefore a desire to restrict immigration was not racist. Daniel argued that the racialized and racist discourses were nevertheless problematic because Latvia was not going to remain homogenous for long and that, in any case, such statements signaled attitudes that were not appropriate for citizens of Europe. And then, Daniel continued, and I quote, a teacher came up to me and said, if we Latvians and Russians cannot get along as it it is, what are we going to do when all those blacks start coming? End quote. End quote. After reciting the statement with emphasis on the words, all those blacks, Daniel fell silent and looked at me meaningfully. I too was silent. I think I shook my head in agreement or as a mark of attention. I wondered whether Daniel was concerned with the sudden unity between Latvians and Russians against all those blacks, the designation, all those blacks, the anti-immigrant sentiment or all of the above. I was interpolated as someone who should clearly understand that on the one hand the statement was outrageous and that on the other hand it marked our, that is Daniel's and my, difference in relation to those who uttered it. So the silence that followed Daniel's recounting of the scene of intolerance worked as a validating technique in the formation of our understanding of the problem. And this was one of uh, many such examples I encountered during my fieldwork. The tolerance workers processed their ethnographic data, as it were, through a coding operation, whereby they recognized certain statements as indicative of the problem of intolerance. And the ways in which they coded social reality very much resembled social science techniques, such as critical discourse analysis. Theo van Dijk's discourse analysis, I don't know if anyone's familiar with it, was very, very popular, where he basically... Um, gives a formula by which to identify racist statements in public discourse and usually sentences that start with, I'm not a racist, but those kind of statements. Um, so the more anyway, so the more such statements circulated, the more tolerance workers had a sense that the magnitude of the problem was, was quite large and Ilse again, the uh, human rights activist, uh, uh, pointed out that however difficult the work was, there was a certain advantage to the widespread intolerance in Latvia. And she said, the advantage that we have is that when you get access to people, they say incredible things. They are not used to being monitored, and they don't recognize that they are making problematic statements, end quote. So then further work um, required that tolerance workers uh, obtained recognition from the larger public. And this is where diagnosis emerged as an as a important tool in the tolerance work. So, for example, a working meeting in October of 2005 began with a discussion on what was to be done. One member of the group suggested that hiring a camera operator and a journalist or a social scientist to accompany a member of the African Latvian Association on their daily routine and to film and record the kind of reactions and gestures the person received Um, on the city of streets, so this was going to be her experiment. In in her suggestion, this filming and broadcasting of acts of intolerance would amount to a useful pedagogical exercise through which the public could finally see their injurious conduct. Another tolerance worker uh, considered conducting an experimental project where a group of people would be exposed to literature, film, and arranged meetings with the other, as she said, while keeping a diary on what, if anything, triggered changes in the way they thought about this person, group, or themselves in relation to difference. Um, I should note that these two proposals did not go through at the time, but just last week... Uh, Latvian television aired a show called um, Operation Burka in a series called Forbidden Tactics, where in anticipation of increased immigration in Latvia, um, uh, they sent a woman dressed in a burka to rent an apartment, to get a job, and to do shopping, aiming thus to expose uh, intolerance in Latvian society. Now, um, there are very few women who wear burkas in Latvia, the Latvian Muslim population of about 10,000 largely consists of former Soviet citizens from historically Muslim areas of Russia, though there are Muslims from other parts of the world, including converts. And this episode itself is really worth a whole paper, but I'm just going to show you one, one uh, still shot. Uh, after the woman had sort of, with some difficulty, but nevertheless obtained a job and uh, an apartment, they, they sent her shopping. And so the narrative goes uh, that, you know, she's walking through the store and, um, and people are not sort of, some people are looking, but, but nobody's saying anything. So now in order to, to really sort of get to it, uh, they send in a provocateur through the taller man um, who's standing one person in, you know, behind her. And the provocateur says to the man in line, listen, you know, are you not afraid of, of these kinds in black rags? And the guy behind him says, Well, no, not really. And the provocateur then goes on to say, Well, I am, you know, and sort of goes on to sort of um, continue this conversation. So, all of these prob- uh, uh, proposals, the, the initiatives, the ones proposed and the ones carried out, located the problem of intolerance in the psychology of individuals, even if they rendered it as a, it as a historically formed collective pathology, and assumed that treatment could consist of seeing oneself in a mirror or a critical reflection upon oneself. Since most people did not encounter um, potential objects of intolerance on a daily basis, then uh, they needed to be provoked, confronted, and observed. So while tolerance workers identified key questions, how to incite people to think about the things they take for granted about the naturalized hierarchies of self and other which shape their life worlds, about problems that may not affect their daily life, but that might affect other people's lives, they actually crucially failed to formulate this as a transnational historical problem in which Latvians too participated, but which couldn't be explained by focusing solely on individual or collective moral failings and shortcomings. Uh, So the tolerance workers then pushed ahead... Uh, with diagnosing the problem through a series of questionnaires and social science uh, research methods. Uh, So, for example, a survey um, uh, conducted by the Public Policy Center Providus in 2007 Aims to measure levels of intolerance among teachers, the authors used popular social psychology tools such as social dominance orientation and right wing authoritarianism scale to diagnose the teachers, whereas social dominance orientation measures the extent to which individuals support the hierarchical organization of society with their particular group at the top of the hierarchy. the right wing authoritarianism scale measures such character traits as conventionalism, authoritarian aggressivity, and submission to authority. As described in the report, ideal type right-wing authoritarians authoritarians are uncritical, exclusionist, hateful towards other groups, cowardly, dogmatic, and more. So the teachers in this survey came out as higher than average authoritarians, and the authors suggested that they probably did not differ much in that regard from the rest of the population. This and other surveys uh, were not concerned with how understandings were formed but focused instead on expressions of what were assumed to be already formed opinions, in that sense putting a certain version of liberalism in practice as argued by Andreas Glaser. These surveys were products of the remaking of knowledge and understanding that was taking place as as part of post-socialist transformations. They were complicit in a way with producing ignorance about the present, while at the same time producing knowledge about the distance from the imagined democratic future. Um... So for another, for example, one of the most cited pieces of evidence of the problem of intolerance in Latvia was from a research report that the Baltic Social Sciences Institute produced in 2004. It showed that, among other things, 45% of Latvians and 41% of Russian respondents would not want to live next door to Muslims. And while they did produce... Uh, internationally comparable data between states and nationally comparable data between ethnic groups, they really did nothing to probe into the specific articulations of racialized exclusions. As lamented by Michael, the member of African Latvian Association, he said, all these surveys tell you is that people do not want to live next door to this or that person, but they don't tell you why, end of quote. So this lack of information about why uh, people didn't want to live next door to, to certain others, uh, generated a lot of speculation. And um, explanations ranged from evoking a Soviet or Latvian mentality to pop theories about difference, such as people being afraid of the strange, or in times of turmoil, people turning against uh, difference. So for example, consider this narrative of another government worker who was a former actually communist activist and, and then sort of integrated into the post-Soviet structures. She said, if we opened Soviet textbooks, they would all have texts about people's friendship, but xenophobia has existed forever. But it was hidden, it couldn't be publicly expressed, it was silenced. And the fact that everyday xenophobia is increasing every year concerns me greatly. People have difficult times socioeconomically and they look for someone to blame. 15 years are nothing and we cannot expect that we will get a developed democracy in such a short time, that is naive. In difficult times, phobias flourish people need to find an enemy. It happens now as well. I tried to read research and questions of tolerance, and they frightened me. People start hating those who do not yet live here, Chinese, Muslims, and blacks, end quote. Her narrative exhibits nearly all of the elements of the post-Soviet knowledge production apparatus that I have outlined so far, and that you may recognize as a series of established certainties that underlie political and policy discourse, First, it harks back to the Soviet period and the obfuscation of negative attitudes towards difference through ideological discourses of the friendship of the peoples. And just for compare, oops. <laughs> Anyways, um, just for comparative purposes, um, that is a poster that sort of promotes Soviet friendship of the peoples, and that is a, a unity and diversity poster that was developed as part of these uh, tolerance initiatives in European Union. And sort of many have noted. The kind of symbolic similarities of the two sort of visual representations of of, um, of friendship of the peoples and the diversity discourse within EU. It then moves on to argue that now in the post-Soviet present, the veil of silence has been lifted, and xenophobia that existed forever is visible and exacerbated due to the difficult socioeconomic situation in which people tend to blame the other, that is the scapegoat. Moreover, the inability to cope with socioeconomic difficulties, but through xenophobic scapegoating, is a sign of backwardness that democratization should overcome. So this was her uh, ready sort of made explanation. But By thus critiquing knowledge production about racism and intolerance, I don't mean to suggest that there was no genuine interest among tolerance workers to understand racialized exclusions, but rather that generation of this understanding was structured by standardized methods of knowledge production that privileged comparativism and were embedded in methodological nationalism and therefore hindered building on insights that tolerance workers may have developed through their own engagement with the world. We are thus seeing quite a spectacular failure of understanding of the post-Soviet present. The end of history created conditions for circular knowledge production foreclosed to critical insight. The need to catch up with Europe came to structure all all spheres of life, especially tolerance work. Especially, especially tolerance work, as there seemed to be no other alternatives to backward nationalism but liberalism. Having to report to European monitoring institutions, as well as having to legitimate policy interventions through policy research, resulted in a diagnostic mode of knowledge production. A diagnostic mode of knowledge production aims to establish how a particular place fares in relation to an already defined problem. Thus, for example, it aims to measure the extent of civil society in Latvia rather than generate an in-depth understanding of a social, associ- associational activity, or it aims to measure the extent of economic activity in the Latvian countryside rather than um, generate in-depth understanding of how people craft uh, their lives in uncertain conditions. The description of symptoms often uh, is uh, alone is supposed to elicit the recognition of the problem uh, on the part of those who are well-versed in the social and political maladies that haunt society, and thus Ilze could easily say that in Latvia our biggest problem is the inability to recognize the problem. Now, in conclusion, I want to reiterate that for... In arguing for a critical analysis of liberal anti-racism and tolerant promotion, I do not aim to absolve the Latvian public from critical reflection on its own racialized exclusions, quite the opposite. My aim is to deepen the reflections by deposing the liberal knowing subject and demanding that this subject joins Latvians in critical reflections about complicity with racialized regimes of power and knowledge. In this context, it is interesting to think Why post-socialist democratization has largely remained outside of the critical purview, despite the fact that similar projects have been subject to vehement critique, anthropological and otherwise, in post-colonial contexts. Just to mention a few, Elizabeth Pominelli's critique of Australian multiculturalism, John Bowen's analysis of the ruse of secularism in France, Saba Mahmoud's critique of liberal feminism in relation to women's piety movements in Egypt, I'm not suggesting that critiques of post-socialist democratization projects should be let to sit at the lofty uh, table of critique just because, so to speak, but rather that there is something of interest in this dynamic, something that is telling about the moral and political imaginaries that shape the current historical conjuncture. And I will merely gesture towards some of these. So this is is recognizable from the earlier uh, slide, the triangulation. So I want to suggest that what makes post-colonial critiques of Western democratization and liberalization projects possible is the assumption that ultimately the subject on behalf of whom uh, such critique is extended is innocent in its cultural difference. So, for example, in Povinelli's analysis of Australian multiculturalism, the Aboriginal subject may be repulsive to the Australian liberal, but inhabits a space of innocent cultural difference which Australian multiculturalism wants to both remake and fix in its place. In Mahmoud's analysis, the pious Muslim woman draws an Islamic tradition to craft a pious and ethical life. For Mahmoud, such a life is good unagentful in its own terms and worth rescuing from the rubble of accusations of terrorism and oppression of women directed at Islamic practice. The Eastern European subject, and so this subject of critique, also then extends a critique uh, towards the liberal European subject um, and of sort of the racialized and colonial uh, uh, European modernity. Now, the Eastern European subject doesn't have recourse to such a space of innocence, for its difference from the point of view of the subject of critique is either nationalism or socialism. These are differences of a discredited and failed modernity. The Eastern European subject is too modern to claim a space of cultural difference that could be marked as local knowledge or local resources and that could therefore legitimate critique of the racialized exclusions of Western liberalism. And yet such a critique from the subject of position of Eastern Europe is crucial for understanding how racialized exclusions operate and remain constitutive of contemporary political norms and forms in Europe. We see how aspiring Europeans are educated to become Europeans by cultivating the correct attitudes towards variously defined others who nevertheless remain racialized and incorporated through exclusion, as Damani Partridge has argued. Now, in the very end, interestingly, one book, and that's probably not the only one, but one book that has taken on liberal conceptions of gender, race, and ethnicity in post-socialist contexts, namely Gerald Creed's Analysis of Mumming Rituals in Bulgaria, must in a way construe the resourceful post-socialist subject via a modern version of a pre-modern cultural difference and only then mount a critique of liberalism. Creed thus uses recognizable post-colonial tools to first exoticize the Bulgarian post-socialist subject and then to mount a critique of the West. And so it seems that that, that not only is there a proliferation of ignorance about the present, but also a lack of language to articulate a critique of it. And now this identification of this positionality of post-socialist Eastern Europeans in the global order of things is not merely a product of an intellectual exercise. Actually, many of my informants and colleagues exhibit sensibilities that suggest it has effects and that a new consciousness is information. And here I think our hope lies in anthropology as especially well positioned to trace emerging forms of life and politics and to understand them on their own terms. Thank you.